tire or die. And so when they do, what do you do? And most of these throughout history, and we see these same things happening in rural areas with farms and family-owned businesses. It's the scion that takes over the business. And you're thinking, scion, isn't that a, a line of cars made by Toyota? No. Scion's the heir. Scion is the heir from a prominent family who takes on the family business, who inherits that. You know, sports franchises are kind of becoming more like the British monarchy or political dynasties. Arms. In fact, half of the NFL franchises today have been inherited by sons or daughters or a wife. And 17 of the teams in baseball, hockey, and basketball have been passed down from a father to sons, daughters, or a wife. More locally, the ownership of all of the four major professional sports teams in Denver could soon be handed down to the Scions. Stan Kroenke, who owns the Avs, the Nuggets, the Rapids, the Mammoth, and the St. Louis Rams. Because he owns the St. Louis Rams, according to NFL rules, has to let go of the ownership of the Avs and the Nuggets. And guess who's going to get those? Josh Kroenke, who's already running those teams. Josh Kroenke will be the owner of the Avs and the Nuggets. And don't get me started on the Momforts and the Rockies. I wish Stan would buy them. The Momforts have said they have no intention of selling the cash cow that is the ATM called Coors Field and the Colorado Rockies to somebody who'd actually create a winner for us. Kansas City Royals are showing how it should be done, by the way, in the small market. These are, my, uh, these are not biblical, by the way. These are just opinions. But the Monforts have said that they plan to pass down the Rockies, give the franchise to their kids, which there are seven, and I'm sure that's going to go really well, spectacularly well. And then the one that is on everybody's mind this past week, because this is kind of Pat Bolin week with the Broncos, and tonight during halftime, Pat Bolin, his name will be put onto the Broncos ring of fame. And Pat Bolin, as you know, stepped aside from the day-to-day ownership of the Denver Broncos because he's battling Alzheimer's. And the Broncos have been put into what's called the Pat Bolin Trust. And the Pat Bolin Trust is, is managed by some of Pat Bolin's best friends. But the NFL has said that the ownership of the Denver Broncos needs to be clarified within two years. It cannot just stay within a trust. And it has been said that Pat hopes that one of his children will emerge as worthy to run the Broncos organization. Now, if you're a fan of the Broncos, you really care about who ends up running the Broncos. Patrick, one of his sons, is director of facilities at the Denver Broncos, and he seems to be doing a pretty good job. John Bolin Jr., his other son, in June of this year, was arrested on charges of uh, domestic violence and harassment. And in the 911 call that 
was made, he said, I'm the owner of the Broncos. I am the blood of the city. I know the mayor. They still brought him in and cuffed him and booked him. Sounds like John Bolin might be out. Perhaps there's still an outside chance for you or for me to be adopted by Pat. (laughs) To become the next owner. I mean, we all, those of us who are football fans, we have our opinions about how these things should be run. I'm actually trying to get the Monforts to notice me. But could you imagine being John Bolin, being that guy, messing that up? Could you imagine being the scion, being the one that has been speculated in the local media as the heir apparent and throwing that away? The Broncos, according to Forbes, are valued at $1.95 billion dollars. Every single luxury vehicle that is driven onto that facility has been paid for by Pat Bolin. Could you imagine throwing that away? Messing that up? You know, we can all easily say, well, if it was me, clearly I wouldn't do that. If it was me, I wouldn't squander the opportunity. If it was me, I would never throw away my future inheritance. Because I was cocky, because I was stubborn, because I was stupid, because I was foolish. I would do everything to realize my inheritance. I would do everything to protect the family name. I would do everything to make sure that I was the guy. Now, we're going to continue to look at the parable of the prodigal son. Perhaps you can see where this is going a bit. We've been talking about the parable of the prodigal son for the last few weeks, and it is such a rich story that Jesus told. Let me just read to you from Luke 15 verses 11 through 20, just to remind ourselves and reorient ourselves again to the story. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the young of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion And ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
It's a classic story. It's the story of a father and his two sons. And we continue to focus on the younger son. Don't worry, we'll get to the older son in a bit. But this story has this son who wishes dad were dead. He's the younger son, and that's important because the younger son was never the Zion, was never the Zion. It was always the eldest brother that got most of the inheritance. And the reason this is true, and it's easier for us in rural America to understand this, is because most of the land was, most of the wealth was tied up in land. And when you divide land, you're dividing the wealth. If you divide it amongst three, and then they divide it between their three, so that's now nine, and they divide it amongst their three kids each, and, that's, and all of a sudden the wealth is dissipated. And in our day and age, we think that's fair. We want things to be fair. I know a man who is a police officer, and he would collect firearms, and he had three sons, and he would buy new firearms, and he would buy three of each new firearm because he didn't want his sons fighting over the firearms when he died and passed them down. And so he'd buy three of each. So they wouldn't fight over it. He wanted to be fair with the inheritance. In the ancient world, they didn't care about fair. They didn't worry about that. Not like we do. If you were the eldest son, sorry, ladies, you got two-thirds of the inheritance of the family and everybody else, the other sons, sorry, ladies, got a third and split it amongst themselves. And it was the oldest son's job to keep the wealth of the family together. Because if you lost it, the family lost everything. It was tied to the land, their wealth. Now, ladies, in modern day, America. Many women will feel offended by these notions. And they might even feel, why are you saying sons? Why does the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 and 4 talk about us as sons? In fact, let's read those real quick because we're talking about sonship here. And Paul says this, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. He's speaking to men and women. You're all sons of God. Through faith, Paul was just super sexist. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have been put, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Notice the next line. There is nor male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He continues and says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, the reason I'm going to use the word sons, ladies, is because it's subversive. What do you think the women heard when in the first century, when they were never going to inherit anything from dad, when they heard you're a son? 
you're going to inherit. What do you think they heard? They heard you are as valuable as the firstborn son. So women, do not chafe at the language of being a son of God. Just as much as the men should not squirm when we use the bride of Christ to refer to them. At the same time, none of us should get upset when Jesus calls us stupid sheep. These are all metaphors, and you need to grab hold of them, and you need to recognize what they are teaching us, because all of them have truth that is meant for each of us. And to be called a son of God in the first century culture meant that you are an inheritor. You are an heir. You couldn't say that of the daughters back then. So when he says, sons of God, you are a recipient, an heir of the inheritance. And that is great news. Now, what are the benefits of being a son? Did you notice what happens with the young man, the prodigal and his plan? And we talked about this a little last week. He has a plan of how he's going to get back. And the way he's going to get back is he says, make me a hired man. I am not worthy to be called your son. And it's true. He's not worthy to be called the son any longer. He blew it. Just like Pat probably has a feeling sometimes with John Bolin, his son. Oh, my gosh. In fact, in Japan, they've come, a, they've come up with a unique way of figuring out the problem with the scion. In Japan, they adopt kids to run their corporations they find a kid who's got it going on they got they find a kid who understands how to run the business and manage the business and grow the business and so they adopt them literally and then they hand the business on to them (laughs) i wonder how the naturally born children feel but here This dad's not going to have anything to do with that. In fact, at the end of the parable, we see, and we didn't read this today, but we see that the father says, my son was lost. Now he's found. He was dead, but he's alive again. He reintroduces him. He brings him back into the family. He will have none of the son's idea of make me a hired man. And one of the things that this brings about is security. It's a beautiful picture because the father, he he embraces him. He kisses them and he says, give him a robe and bring him the ring. This is lost on us, but the ring was probably the family signet ring. And it was a means by entering into contracts on behalf of the family. And he's giving the youngest son authority to act on his behalf as his heir. He is basically saying, you're the son. I'm not going to hire you. I'm not going to have you as a slave. You're my son. And this is great news because it brings great security. Because if you employ anyone or if you are an employee, what happens when employees mess up? They get fired. What happens when sons messed up? 
When employees mess up, employers fire them and wash their hands of them and say, good riddance, glad to be done with you. But when a son messes up, they get more attention and time from dad. When a son messes up, they get more focus from the parent. In fact, if you want more parents' attention, start messing up. Now, it's a bad way to get attention because the attention you get will not feel good, at least at my house. But the attention, the security of a son is there. It's assumed he cannot be fired. He cannot be laid off. He's a son. He's secure in that relationship. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, a pastor of, from England, he was actually a medical doctor before he became a pastor, and he was one of the best preachers of his time. And when he would visit people pastorally, when people would come and speak to him at his office, he had a diagnostic question he would ask people. He would ask them this, are you a Christian? <laughs> Pretty basic question. But he was using it as a diagnostic question. He would say, are you a Christian? Are you a child of God? And if the answer came back, which it often did, well, I'm trying. He instantly knew that person did not understand what it meant to be a Christian. He instantly knew that that person had no idea of what it meant to be adopted as a son to have sonship put upon you because it is a legal transaction that instantly changes things. There is no trying. The hired man tries to earn his way back into the family. The son is adopted. And instantly things change. If you name the name of Jesus Christ, you are an adopted son. There is no try. How do you try to be your dad's son or daughter? You ever thought about that? I'm trying to... It just happened. I had no choice in the matter. Sometimes we try to not be their son or daughter. But it's always there. It's present. Another thing that, brings, that happens when we are sons, when we are heirs, is we have intimate access to the Father. There was a book written by Sinclair Ferguson, and it was called The Children of the Living God. And it told the story of a missionary who adopted a very poor, young, orphan girl. And she had terrible life growing up, and she was old enough that she had trust issues, and she had detachment disorders, and it was hard for her to bond with her new adoptive parents. And she was standoffish, and it just broke his heart because he wanted so much to be her dad. And one day he was sitting at his desk and she came in and said, Daddy, I need new shoelaces. And it just melted his heart because he knew she now saw him as Daddy. You see, if we are sons of God, we are given access that sons are given. We are given access to God that doesn't come through priests or offerings or tithes. It doesn't come through doing or trying. It comes as a result of that relationship, father, son. 
It's available to us. It's there. We have intimate access to our Father. Another thing we have as as sons is we have a future hope. We have a future hope that we are the heirs. (laughs) Kind of goes back to John Bolin Jr., right? I mean, how would you mess that up? You have the future hope of being the owner of the Denver Broncos, for goodness sake. You have the future hope of owning a franchise worth nearly $2 billion. You can have really bad days, but if that's in your near future, it changes your outlook on how bad those days are, doesn't it? Oftentimes, our economy is up in the air and we don't know where things are going to go. And we don't know what, what uh, and, and by the way, I don't understand the whole, I listened to the, the farm reports and the prices and I heard that cattle's down and corn is whatever. And I don't get it. I don't understand it. All I know is people freak out about it. But if tomorrow all those prices go down, If you were to know that in the near future, you were to have a windfall, a great inheritance of wealth, does it change your perspective on cattle prices and corn prices? Does it change your perspective on how well the stock market does or doesn't? Does it change your perspective on all that stuff? If you know in the not-too-distant future, there is a windfall inheritance of wealth awaiting me. You can open the paper and go, oh, it's stock market down 1,000 points. Oh, well. Because you have a future hope. And don't you see the parallel? Don't you see what's available to us as sons of God? as sons of the Father, that there is this windfall inheritance awaiting you? What is that inheritance? What is it that you and I, those who follow Jesus Christ as Lord, what are we heirs of? Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth. All of it. That's our Father's stuff. And the Father is in the business of perfecting it, of redeeming it, of fixing it, of bringing it back to its former glory. And his plan is for you and I, those who follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, his plan is for us to rule and reign with him as heirs. I mean, why would you worry about cattle prices? about corn prices, about whether your 401k is up or down. Why would you concern yourself with these things? Jesus even says, where would you worry about these things? Why would you store up for yourself treasures on earth where thieves and moth and rust can, rust can come in and corrode and destroy? Why would you care? Why wouldn't you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven? can never be taken away. Why wouldn't we do that? 
Perhaps we've bought some lies. Perhaps we don't understand the community that sonship creates. Perhaps we don't understand what this means to be sons of God. Maybe it hasn't sunk in. And by the way, I'm at the front of that line. It hasn't sunk into me yet. You see, being a son creates an interesting community. The word that the scriptures use over and over and over again to describe the community of faith that is created is brotherly love. It sounds like a hippie term. It sounds like something from the 60s. Brotherly love. And we, we lose something when we see it that way. You see, the ancient world got it. The ancient pagans understood it better than we do today. There was a pagan critic. His name was Lucian. And he wrote this about the church. This is a critic, by the way. This is not a Christian. This isn't a follower of Jesus. This is somebody who looks at it and goes, are you kidding me? He said this, their founder, Jesus Christ, persuaded them. They should be like brothers to one another. Therefore, this is what he observed Therefore, they despise their own privacy and view all their possessions as common property. That's what a pagan critic saw when he looked at the church. He looked at people who despised their own privacy and saw their possessions as being held in common. Now, how do you see it that way? You only see it that way when you're family, don't you? The only way you see it that way is if you have an unconditional commitment to each other, kind of like your siblings. Now, only children, you don't get this, and tough darts for you. But those of us who have siblings, I have two. I'm the oldest. I robbed the gene pool of all the good genes, and they got the leftovers. <laughs> Except for math, I left that. That looked boring. But none of us picked our siblings. We didn't pick our siblings. They just showed up one day. For the oldest child, you know what that felt like because for a while, mom and dad just doted on you. And then number two shows up. And all of a sudden, they don't care about you near as much. And then the great experiment begins. How messed up can we make the firstborn compared to the secondborn, right? I mean, that's how it felt to me. But the siblings, you, you don't choose your siblings. In fact, many of you would never choose your siblings as friends. They would not be people that you go, oh my gosh, I love this person. I love this kid. I'm going to hang out with them. You'd be like, oh my gosh. If they weren't a brother or sister. In fact, many of us, we don't see brothers and sisters save for the holidays. We have very little contact with brothers and sisters. Why? Because... We wouldn't choose them. We wouldn't pick them as friends. By the way, that's not a bad thing. That's just the thing. But it's a picture of what the church is. There are many people gathered here today that you probably would not choose to associate with. So hear me well. You have a choice in which church to attend. But once you choose it, you do not have a choice in who you associate with in that church. They are your brothers and sisters. You do not have choice. 
If you don't like us, move on, move along, find another place. But once you choose here, once you say this is it, then you're stuck with us. These are your siblings. These are your brothers and sisters. And what does that unconditional commitment bring? Well, it brings transparency. Can't fool brothers and sisters. My brothers and sisters, my brother and sister, I can't fool them. They know Steve. They know who I am. There's no fooling. How about you? Your brothers and sisters, you pull the wool over their eyes very well. Why is it that we think church should be this optional community where we go for an hour? By the way, if you don't see change in your life, if you don't see yourself growing in your relationship with Christ, if you don't see more and more of Jesus in you, more and more of you being loving and caring and kind and generous, if you don't see more and more of that in you, it's because you are not availing yourself to the community of brothers and sisters who are here to help you in that. It will not happen from just teaching. It happens through application. That's why the scriptures say over and over and over and over again, love one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens. It has all these one another's in it. And it doesn't say, pastor, do this to everybody. Elders, do this to everybody. It says, do this to one another. If you are stuck and plateaued in your growth, perhaps you don't really have brothers and sisters in your life who you're transparent with. It also challenges us with selfishness. We have to be unselfish as brothers and sisters because in a very real sense, your family, your siblings have claim on the family's resources. They do. Your brothers and sisters have claim on mom and dad's resources. You may not like that, but they do. I don't like it. My dad's got stuff I want to make sure I get. But guess what? I have to fight my brother and sister for that. Am I going to be stupid and do that? Am I going to take them to court so I can have the 30 6 and the Jeep? Well, you already got a Jeep and you already got a 30 6 I should get both. Should I do that? Or should I be a brother who practices brotherly love and I'm unselfish and I figure out a way that all of what we have is common because we all have claim to it. We all claim it some way. See, this is why the the deacon's fund offering is so important for you and I to participate in. Those of us who find ourselves being blessed of God right now, who have extra and margin, we should give generously to the deacon's fund. Why? Because the deacon's fund goes to help out your brothers and sisters who are struggling. Remember Lucian. 
and his comment. Do you think the watching world looks at the church today and goes, you know, those people do not value privacy and those people see their possessions as being owned by everyone? I think not. I don't think that's how the world at large looks at the church. Sadly, because they're watching televangelists and their message is, gimme, gimme, gimme. See, the reason we should give, the reason we should practice generosity is because it ain't your stuff. It's Christ. It's the Father's. And in his generosity, he gave it to you to be a good steward of it. And part of that good stewardship is to bless your brothers and sisters in Christ who do not have as much as you. And so the deacons fund is a very tangible, real way to do this. The other place to do this, that's a very tangible and real way to do this that we will be participating in in the near future is the Advent Conspiracy Offerings. It's a place that we can take our money, be generous and unselfish, and give it to people, brothers and sisters, who are in greater need than us. Just yesterday, Marnie and I were trying to figure out what are we getting people for Christmas? And I'm sure they'll help us with some ideas. But at the end of the day, our kids live in the Walt Disney world of human history. I mean, it's better than what most of you older folks can remember life in America was like. It's better now than it was then, financially speaking. So sometimes the prophet in me thinks, let's give them nothing so they understand how bad it is for the children of the world. You know, my, my dad laid that on me all the time, you know, like, eat your food because there's starving children in Africa. And I was like, pack it up and send it to them, you know. <laughs> Guilt only goes so far. Shaming only goes so far. We have to have a transformation. And what's going to bring about this change in us? Because if you are like me, you're a materialist, you're a consumerist, you like to buy things and have stuff and you want more of it. It's like what the Proverbs say, the eye never gets tired of seeing. And then the Steve version, and the pocketbook never gets tired of spending. There's always more to accumulate, always more to have, always more to get. What's going to fix this in us? What's going to create this kind of community in us where we are linked up together, we care about one another, we're in groups together, and we're giving permission to each other to speak stuff into our lives? What's going to cause us to be generous with people who we may not even like, but we go, you're my brother, you're my sister, What's going to bring about that transformation? It's in the text. How did the younger brother get brought back in the family? At whose expense? The older brother. For him to become an heir again, where he had already received his inheritance, where does the inheritance for his future come from? the remaining wealth that the elder brother has. 
Because all of dad's wealth that remains is his. The younger brother to be welcomed in as a son and to be an heir to all that the dad has comes at the expense of the elder brother. And we're going to look a couple weeks from now at how well he handled that. But we have a true elder brother. We have a true elder brother who came from heaven to earth, lived as a, as a poor, frail human being. We know he's poor because he said, even foxes and birds have places to live. I got nowhere to lay my head. Jesus was homeless, apparently. He came and he lived this life. He left the riches of heaven and he lived in the dirt and squalor of earth for us. He came and he gave up his his inheritance so that we might be brought into that inheritance. It was all of his. And he chose to share it with us. And those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ and name him as our Savior and our Lord, we are now sons of God. We have a future hope. We have a new community, a new family of brothers and sisters. And my question for all of us is this. Is it true? Do we live it? Does it make a difference in our lives? Does it make a difference in our church? Imagine a group of people that were just utterly convinced that these things are true. Would that make a difference at all? Would that make a difference in how you treat possessions and material things? How you fret and you worry if you knew that someday it's all going to be mine? Would it make a difference in how you approach and handle anyone in this church if you started to understand and see them as brothers and sisters? Beyond that, you would give them permission to speak into your life. You see, the church isn't just a club. Maybe you've been a member of a club. Maybe maybe you're like a bird watcher. You go to bird watching club meetings. And you go to the bird watching club meeting and one of your friends at bird club watching meeting says, why are you dating her? And you think, we're bird watching club people. We don't talk about my personal life at bird watching club. Let's go watch birds. But brothers and sisters, family, they have those kinds of conversations. Why are you dating her? Why are you so selfish? Why don't you do more? Why aren't you giving? Why aren't you more kind? How come you're so mean? You ever heard these things from your siblings? I have. Why? Because we've given each other permission to speak into our lives. Have you given anyone that permission? If not, you're stuck. You're stuck and you will remain stuck until somebody has that kind of permission as a brother and sister to speak truth into your heart.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these metaphors, these pictures that you've given us. We thank you for the true elder brother, Jesus, who didn't count heaven something to just hang on to for himself. But he gave it up. He came here. He lived. He died. He rose again so that we might be heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Man, that should astound us. That's better than inheriting the Broncos. Help us to understand just how amazing it is to be an heir of God, to be adopted sons. Help us to let that inform us the rest of the week. May it be something that the Holy Spirit brings to our mind whenever we sense we're worrying, you're a son of God. Whenever we start to be upset with somebody in our midst here at church, they are brothers in Christ. May this change us. May these truths of the gospel of what Jesus has done for us, may they change us. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Brothers, let us experience transforming brotherly love. May it change who we are because of whose we are. Amen.